Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good day. Good day and good day to you, to everyone. Uh, Good to be back. Continue in the um, Gospel of Matthew as we continue to talk about the difficult sayings of Jesus and everything tied to that. Today we're going to take it a little bit step further and we're going to talk about the idea from the New Testament of hell and the outer places. Uh, I was going to say Hades and Sheol, but we're really not going to touch upon those two, kind of more your Old Testament type things. We may briefly brush upon those, but mainly it'll be what uh, Jesus was referring to when he talked about hell and some of the scripture that is used uh, that references it. Actually, the book of Matthew speaks about hell uh, quite a bit. He also refers to his weeping and gnashing of teeth and the outer places. So Matthew was kind of, I wouldn't say he was all in. The author of Matthew was all in on this, but he was uh, he was something that was interesting to him. So we're going to actually start in chapter 5, uh, verse 21, and read through 26. It's going to be a little bit different than we typically do. Uh, we're not going to like go, we're going to go verse by verse, but we're not going to do huge blocks. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit more and a little bit more commentary on the word uh, or on the idea or concept of hell as we go through this. So, like I said, we're going to start there uh, in chapter 5, verses 21, uh, yeah, going in 22 through 26. One thing to keep in mind, uh, we're going to start with, this is actually the, the first verses we're looking at is from the Sermon on the Mount. So you have to think that that was probably a pretty decent sized audience that was listening to him as he was uh, speaking. Uh, some of the other ones will, are, are probably more intimate settings that Jesus is speaking with when we talk about uh, the wheat and the weeds and everything related to that. So we'll talk about that uh, today as well and a few others <coughs> along the way. So, as we go through this, oh, one other thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up is some of these are parables, parables, and some of these are sermons. And so the sermons, uh, sermons have metaphors, and sermons have um, allegories. And so do parables. If you listen to a, a modern-day pastor, or even pastor the last several hundred years, they'll, they'll use mo- metaphors to tell a story or to explain something. And I think part of that is what's happening here in the ones in the scripture we'll be looking at today. We're not going to look at an exhaustive list of everything related to uh, to what is about hell, or even that what Matthew mentions in the book related to hell. But we'll start with again chapter five, verse twenty-one. Let me read it properly. Uh, you have heard it that it was said to an older generation, "Do not murder." And whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with their brother will be subjected to judgment, and whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council, and whoever says fool will be sent to fiery hell. It's a little scary. So then if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your gift. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while on the way to court, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the warden, and you'll be thrown into prison. So I tell you the truth, you'll never go out of, get out of there until you had paid the last penny. Uh, this is, like I said, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's one of uh, the many uh, commandments that Jesus brings up. Uh, what we all know to as the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. There's a couple other names for it. 
Uh, and so this is just one of them, and it deals with anger and murder, murder. And the part we'll be talking about is the fiery hell part. And again, it depends on which translation you're reading and how it reflect, reflects on what type of hell it will be, fiery or not. And um, it doesn't really change what is being said here what, whenever you see this here and you see maybe a different word used or different words used in a different translation it's just the writers and editors of that translation decided to bring that extra word in or remove a word from it which happens in all translations which is why most translations say something just a little bit different uh, as you look at it so as we go forward here uh, let's let's kind of dissect uh, this little section of scripture and have a couple of side roads, sidebars, rabbit trails, if you want to call them that, uh, as we go along through this. So starting off here, we're dealing with the, the issue of anger uh, and the idea here, and I think the idea through a lot of Matthew is the idea of healthy spiritual relationships within a community is what Matthew is really trying to push at through the words of Jesus. He's not changing the words of Jesus, but, but, the, but by the way he describes the words of Jesus, we, we can see that he has a common theme he's trying to work, or a common thread he's trying to work through related to healthy relationships. Uh, so uh, we, we, we see this idea of anger followed immediately by a, a quote of the, the, one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, verse 13. Uh, when, when Jesus quotes a law or a commandment such as this, he is for the most part telling them that they are far to exceed whatever the commandment is. In the case here, the commandment is not to murder. Uh, so Jesus is more than just someone who checks off boxes. Uh, he is someone who's going to go well beyond that. And we're going to talk about how our Jewish rabbis of that time uh, used to help people uh, avoid uh, murder or adultery or uh, other sort of things that are in the uh, Decalogue and as well as other laws that we're supposed to uh, avoid. And so an another note we want to keep back, keep, keep in mind uh, based on the idea that if you see Jesus speak a commandment, he wants you to go beyond it, is that a lot of people thought during that time period that Jesus was uh, the return of Moses, a, a version of Moses, a reincarnation of Moses. Um, Moses had returned. Uh, and so he wants to make it clear that no, 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 no. I say a lot of the things that Moses said, especially when I'm talking about the, the Ten Commandments uh, and, and things related to that. But actually, I am, I am Jesus, your Savior, who Moses was kind of pointing to as he wrote. Uh, now, he didn't write all the Pentateuch, but as he participated in the writing of the Pentateuch and as he led the people of Israel, uh, Moses was part of that. So Jesus wants to make it clear that, hey, no, I'm not Moses, I'm Jesus. And I'm ahead at a whole other level. So like I said, uh, verse 21 starts out with a reference to Exodus 20, as well as to Deuteronomy 5, 17. And he's using uh, words here that they would know uh, from the Decalogue uh, as, as we look through this. The second part of verse 21 is a paraphrase of what they refer to as epidetic laws, which are pretty much divine commands uh, of the time. And what that would be is thou shall nots. Uh, from to to they would take the form so your epidemic laws would take the form of you shall not leading to a consequence so in this case if you murder you will be liable for judgment you shall not murder otherwise you'll be the consequence you'll be liable for murder and end up in possible fiery hell 
Uh, some people say that Jesus is referencing uh, Genesis 9-6 when Moses, not Moses, this is Noah. <laughs> Moses wasn't around in Genesis 9-6, but Noah was. And God was talking to Noah and saying, hey, um, this is how this kind of works with capital offenses and murder and everything. And so he's trying to explain that to, to Moses. As we continue on, verse 22, uh, we're going to take a little side road with verse 22 because we're going to look at what the usage of brothers and sisters here. Uh, in many of the sayings of Jesus, he would just use the word brother and not brethren or brothers and sisters. In this case, uh, the word Adelpho is actually in the masculine form, so you can think of this as brother only, but you have to think if he's on the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't excluding the sisters because uh, Jesus did not do that. And so, and, and actually, if you looked at uh, the NIV, uh, the NIV, for those of you who have the new um, international version, yeah, uh, that is actually says brothers and sisters. So I, I like to go along with that, though I don't read the NIV a whole lot. The, the two translations I have with me right now, the NSAB and the NET, or the NET Bible, uh, both refer to brother, and they do make a point related to in the notes um, and commentaries that it was in the masculine form, but at the same time, <coughs> it's we, we can expand that beyond just brothers. So if you're uh, upset or angry with your brothers and sisters. Uh, so if you take this as only he's speaking to the brothers, so I'm going to take a step back here, uh, he could just be talking to the twelve specifically. So it is the Sermon on the Mount, but maybe he's kind of uh, brought it in a little bit uh, to them. Uh, just to them, like he's kind of tightened up the circle a little bit. But then again, there are a lot of disciples who were women too. I think of the Mary and the Marthas. Uh, so I, I'm going to stick with the brothers and the sisters on this. Uh, so if you go in the direction of the brothers and sisters, which I can, of course, which I can see, uh, what that do, then does allows us to do is to go beyond just the twelve or just who people who are known as the disciples, uh, and then go even further out into the community, eventually into the overall. What well, we eventually end up being the, the, the church, the Christian church. There was not a Christian church in the time of Jesus. There were people who followed Jesus. Uh, there were not Christians until after Jesus. There were people who were Jewish and Gentiles who, who followed Jesus but didn't have that official name until then. And so, as we know, Jews would continue to go to synagogue, or Christian Jews would continue to go to synagogue even after believing in Jesus and deciding to follow Jesus just because that's what Jews would do. Anyways, uh, you can also expand this to... Uh, neighbors and enemies. If you were to look, go to chapter 5, which we're in, uh, looking at 43 and 47. So not just uh, brothers and sisters, if you want to look at it close, as in a close grip people, close-knit group of people, uh, but also look at your neighbors uh, and <clears throat> people you don't necessarily like or like you. As we read through this and go into uh, verse 22, Jesus pretty quickly escalates uh, what we have here. We have the court, which possibly was the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and they were kind of the high court. Uh, and then we head off into some sort of fiery hellscape, which is very interesting. Uh, we can look at this as a bit of hyperbole, which is uh, perfectly fine, and, and the reason it's perfectly fine to have hyperbole in texts such as this is that this is referred to as sapient literature. And we talked about it last time, what sapient literature was, and what that is is Jewish wisdom literature. And so when you see uh, this sort of usage here, what you're seeing here is you're learning lessons. You're listening to a wise sage. So Matthew is trying to set Jesus up as a wise sage. So he is uh, creating a uh, Jewish wisdom literature, which is similar to Proverbs and Job, Ecclesiastes. It, it can go on. 
uh, we, we could take this as Jesus trying to make a point regarding how we treat each other and how we respond when we're wrong. Uh, one point that is coming from this is that if one is not willing to forgive, he, he or she will be judged. Uh, the larger point is that we are to reconcile with those who have wronged us. To fully reconcile, not just to, to kind of reconcile, but to complete and full reconciliation. No half reconciling at this point. But let's take a step back. Uh, is Jesus saying never to be angry? Uh, he would be contradicting other philosophers of the time if he were. So uh, Aristotle and, and other philosophers of that time would believe that there is a point in time in which you can be angry in the right way, the right time, at the right things. A little bit more on that here in a second. As we see in verse 22, you good for nothing or you fool, you may have in your translation, I believe it also in the NIV, they just went off the rails, those NIV guys. Uh, they used the word, uh, the Aramaic word raka, which means uh, you empty head or you fool. Uh, for the most part, uh, Jesus was referring to how people would refer to other people's level of intelligence. And so uh, name calling is pretty much what we have going on at this point. And we know, based on Jewish law and tradition, that name-calling certainly wouldn't have sent people to, uh, to uh, hell or death. And so there's something else that's going on here. There are other non-deadly options related to what to do uh, when you're not willing to play well with others, uh, such as call them names and be a little bit mean. And you can go to chapter 18, verses 15 to 17 of here in the book of Matthew to see what that is. We have to be clear, this is not about a, a righteous anger, which is the direction Aristotle came from as well. And I believe that's where the direction uh, that Jesus is coming from, which, well, I don't believe I, well, I guess you have to say believe, because I don't know. I mean, you know, I know it's, I know it. He's righteous. I know he's talking about being righteous anger. Uh, but that's my understanding of what's happening here. So it's more about what he's talking about here is sinful anger against another person in an inappropriate expression. A, a good example of this would be with the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, what Cain did to Abel, he actually killed Abel, murdered Abel. Uh, he was angry, so he murdered Abel. Uh, and so you have this, uh, which is also what's also very interesting about that story in reference to that is that here in these following verses, right after verse 23 going forward, there's a sacrifice involved with that, and with Cain and Abel, there's a sacrifice. So I think there's some, maybe there's some tie in there. Uh, so if Jesus is speaking of all types of angers, he would have to condemn his own behavior, right? Uh, based on how he responds to those selling animals and indulgences in the temple when he goes, clears out those, those peddlers uh, at, at one point along his, his ministry. <clears throat> Anyways, let's go back to the escalation that ends up in hellfire. The words used by Jesus at, at first are not very extreme. Uh, the alarming piece would have been how quickly his anger escalated, uh, leading to a session in court. And, and as people were pondering, oh, this, this time in court, that seems just a little bit extreme just for calling someone a, a raka. Uh, Jesus then brings up hell, which would have jolted the folks listening along as, as they were probably maybe possibly dazing and uh, enjoying the, the nice uh, Galilean weather. Uh, so what has happened here? Uh, Jesus jumps from being accountable to the community to eternal destruction very quickly. And as we proceed through this, let's keep in mind that people were familiar with what Jesus was talking about when it comes to fiery hell. It was not a new concept to them. It wasn't an ancient concept either, in the, especially in the way we talk about it in the 21st century, but it wasn't a, a, 
it wasn't unfamiliar to them. The Jews and the Jewish Christians were familiar with the word uh, Gehenna or hell. Jesus uses it multiple times, according to Matthew. They know of it as a place of final destruction for the wicked and the non-repentant. Uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature is very clear about this. And if we had more time, such as several hours uh, to go through it, we could, we could reference some uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature and see how this kind of ties into that. Remember, Jesus was Jewish, and Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, so of course he's going to use Jewish ideas, concepts, traditions, beliefs uh, to, to be able to tell his story. So let's get a little bit into the Jewish tradition uh, what, regarding Jesus, what Jesus is doing here. And what he's doing is he's using uh, oral traditions known uh, coming from the, the book that eventually became a book after his oral traditions for years called the Mishnah. And he's using what what rabbis at that time, which Matthew was trying to set Jesus up as a sage or as a rabbi, rabbi uh, is to build a fence around the Torah. And what we mean by that, well, well, actually, let me give you an example from the Mishnah, from Abbot 1, and then we can then we talk a little bit more about building the fence. But I think you guys will be able to start getting that, that picture here, here in a second. So Moses received Torah at Sinai and handed it on to Joshua, Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets. And the prophets handed it to the men of the great assembly. They said three things. Be prudent in judgment, raise of many disciples, and make a fence for the Torah. So the idea of the fence is to protect the commandments by creating circumstances that make it difficult to violate. So the fence here is one of just don't get angry. Put yourself in situations uh, to where you don't get angry and you'll be less likely to murder or call someone a raka uh, or an empty head. Uh, let, we can build one more fence. So the, the idea of if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. The idea is, is that you put yourself, uh, well, of course, you literally do not cut off arms and pull out eyes. Uh, it is about putting yourself in the right situations uh, where you do not sin, where you can avoid sin. Uh, be, be wise in your decisions and interactions. So you've built a fence around that situation to where you cannot enter into that situation to where you can sin and then break one of the commandments or fall into uh, an unrighteous lifestyle. Because it's really less about, did I check that box off and not breaking the commandment like the, the rich uh, young ruler? It's more about, am I living a righteous life that is glorifying God? That guy never got that. So more on hell. So as we go into the idea of the, the name of Gehenna comes from the from the actual an actual location uh, known as the Valley of Hinnon, which is a large garbage heap on the south slope of Jerusalem. Apparently that valley is still there, but it's no longer burning with trash. Uh, it was the site of human sacrifice. So if you go back to Second Kings twenty three ten, it was not uh, Jews who were sacrificing there or the people of Israel sacrificing. Uh, it was actually uh, people who had sacrificed to the god Moloch. Moloch was made out of metal. I think he was looked like a wolf, a, city, a wolf that was sitting, sitting wolf with his arms out. And they would place babies uh, and small children on him as offers of sacrifice to, to, to Moloch. Horrible, horrible place. Uh, as you can think about, it. and that was just the ancient history of it. As it as it continued on, uh, it is where they'd throw. You know, as Jerusalem became more of a Jerusalem. Uh, it was a place where they uh, would throw trash. Uh, people, especially like criminals, uh, uh, poor people who had nowhere else to go, uh, and, and just uh, wheat, which we'll be talking about here in a second, would just be burned. And so people knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. <clears throat> A little sidebar of the development of the idea of hell, or what we refer to as of divine punishment, 
is the idea of during the intertestamental period, so that was the time between Malachi and the time Jesus uh, made it to earth, which is about 400 years, uh, the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna uh, became known as a place of divine punishment. And if you were to go back and look at 1 Enoch 27, 90, or 1 27, 2, 90, 26, and for Ezra 7:36, which uh, you should be able to access those online if you ever wanted to, uh, you would be able to see how that developed. And I actually pulled a quote from 1 Enoch 27.2, which reads, Then Raphael, one of the holy angels who is with me, answered me and said to me, This accursed valley is for those who are cursed forever. He will be gathered together, all who speak with their mouths against the Lord, words that are not fitting and say hard things about his glory. Here they will gather them together, and here will be their place of judgment. Uh, it was during this time that the idea of the fiery place of judgment started to take hold and was further developed. A sidebar on top of that sidebar is the idea of the medieval period, which is probably, uh, you know, in the 14th, well, what the, we know in the medieval period was, let me say not probably, but the 1300s, so the 14th uh, century, uh, when a lot of our current ideas of hell uh, came around. And some people would say that Dante's, the, the book Dante's Inferno, which was published in that time period, had a lot of influence on what we think about hell and what happens in hell and the maybe the that it's even underground that it's fiery that it's uh there's worms uh that there's uh things worms that eat you there's uh, possibly even uh under god's large vast castle uh there's uh, there's a torture chamber for those who are non-repentant uh so there's a lot of stuff that came out of that period the medieval period again don't have time to go into all the details related to that uh, that also give us our ideas on hell. So as we go back to the verse, which we should. Uh, so this idea of being tossed into Gehenna was extreme for just being angry or saying something mean, like you empty head. Uh, there were already rules for, like I said, there are already rules for this type of abusive language, which pretty much was on a graded scale, uh, which led to kind of a, a period of exclusion from the community. Um, so what, what exactly is happening here? Uh, notice in verse 22, Jesus says nothing about eternal punishment. The idea being that Gehenna burned things up and thrown, uh, thrown in there quite quickly. Uh, you, when you threw weeds and wheat or weeds or uh, trash into fire, it burns immediately. Now, I'm just giving you there's so many arguments about this out there. I'm giving you one and maybe another one. It's, it's so take it as you will. It's just one perspective I'm coming from here. Uh, so let's 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 we'll just go with this idea of it's we'll get more into it in a second, but it's called annihilationist uh, viewpoint of this. So let's continue on. Uh, in, in Matthew twenty five forty six, we're not actually officially going there yet. Uh, we are afforded a, a further explanation of what is eternal punishment or the fiery hell. Uh, eternal punishment is only used in the book of Matthew, and it's synonymous with eternal fire or of hellfire, as we see here in five twenty two. Uh, a lot of times, even since then, and even I think many people today put hell, the idea of hell and eternal punishment, as synonymous. Um, I don't fully see it that way, but that's that's okay. But we are going to go into the debate. So I'm going to bring up two two ideas related to this. The debate is exactly uh, what exactly is eternal punishment and hell fire uh, or the fiery hell. There are multiple lines of thought here. Like I said, we'll go with two of those. First of all, point one is a fire of destruction and annihilation, as in you're obliterated and you do not you no longer exist. That's one. Point two, which uh, many 
Well, let me go. Uh, it, it is a continuous, ongoing agony of conscious punishment that we see provided for the beast, devil, and the false prophet, as we know from Revelation 20, uh, verse 10. Those just two viewpoints of, of many viewpoints uh, that we could look at here. So what I found is that many, but not all, uh, evangelicals, it, not as much as, of course, as our, our mainline brothers and sisters, uh, look at it as the, the latter and not the former. Uh, they look at it as a place of no annihilation and destruction and obliteration, and you no longer exist. Uh, but this is based, again, these two ideas are based on ideas of uh, eternal meaning, everlasting, or forever. But the word that's being used here is in, in the Greek is aeonios. I want to make sure I said that right. Uh, and it's related to, to two ages, is, is one way to translate this, is two, two, two time periods. So it seems the eternal punishment is understood as related to the age to come and not an age that continues forever. Uh, this, again, does not really further the debate, but we'll continue on. If we go with the metaphor of fire, we know that fire annihilates, much like it, uh, we have would have annihilated trash and bodies in the Valley of Hinnon. Uh, this helps us to see what Jesus was saying regarding verse 22. Gehenna continues to burn as more trash is added to it. This is emphasized with the burning of the weeds in 1342. Uh, more on this later. Uh, they are destroyed and do not burn forever. Now, a point has been brought up that what about in Daniel? Uh, when the, the, the folks are thrown into the, the fiery furnace and they do not, uh, not a, a hair is singed, not a cloth, not a cloth that smells like smoke. Uh, true. But if you look at it from uh, the other's perspective, is that the bad guys, when they were thrown in, they were burned up. So, interesting viewpoint related to fire and what fire means. So, can God protect people from burning in fire? And then that we, at that point, we get to the idea of Hades, uh, the idea of Hades of being compartmentalized, where the, you have repentant and non-repentant people in there. Uh, there's a fireside and not fireside. I mean, there's, there's so much to this that we don't even have time to, to go into it. So, anyways... The argument that I'm pointing to here is the annihilationist, the annihilationist theology, uh, which is the idea of the, the, that the words of Matthew here give justice uh, where eternal judgment is not about punishment forever, uh, but instead punishment with eternal consequence. So do we see the difference there? So you're not punished forever, but you are uh, the, the punishment that you face is eternal. <coughs> We spent so much time on that that I'm not even going to go through the rest of these verses because we have to go on to the next one, the next parable. And the next parable is in chapter 13, verse 40 through 43. So let's turn. Let's turn to this. This is dealing with the parable of the weeds. It's not the actual parable of the weeds. It's the explanation of the parables of the weeds. We get more pieces of scripture to it. Uh, so the terrors are being explained here among the, after, so, okay. So chapter 13, verse 24 uh, is where you have the terrors among wheat parable. Uh, and then there's a few other things related to mustard seeds and leaven. And then you see the actual uh, terrors among wheat explained. And that's where we be, where we will be spending most of the time in verses 40 through 43. So let me look at, let's see here. Uh, verse 36 through 43 of chapter 13. Now the net Bible. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, 
Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed this good seed and this is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. As the weeds are collected and burned with fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes him, as well as all lawbreakers. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, the one who has ears. Had better listen. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just how, because it's always like, he who has ears, let him hear. And I'm just, that just really caught my attention there. Hmm. So anyways, this is quite an imperative there at the end that Jesus is providing to those listening. <clears throat> As we look at this, let's let's look at verse 36, and then we'll, of course, run through this. Uh, Jesus heads inside a house, uh, and the disciples follow him, telling us uh, that it's possibly for disciples' ears only. Uh, we could also say, I mean, we don't know if it's exactly 12. That's just what we're assuming. It could have just been there, but it could have been... Another group of disciples, not not without the twelve, but like a, a larger group. And who knows how large the house was? Maybe it was just a few of the disciples. Maybe it was the three, like John, James, and Peter. Uh, so who knows? Anyways, they go into this house and uh, they talk <clears throat> to have an explanation of this. <clears throat> uh, we see through these verses that there is a process for eradicating evil from God's creation. It will not happen until the end of time. Uh, at least the end of time and how we know this end of time. Uh, this end of time as we know it, the renewed heaven and earth, as we know from Revelation 22, uh, puts the kingdom of the Father, which, a.k.a. heaven, and the kingdom of the Son, also known as earth, are one and the same as envisioned in the Lord's prayers. What happens in heaven should happen on earth as well. Lord's prayer plays a very prominent role in this. Uh, he, evil has been obliterated with the significant help of angels removing the, the evil. Uh, and all that will be is intended as God's original design of creation. So if you go back to, of course, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2 you say all my words fully. Uh, verses 40 through 43, uh, this is similar to the parable of the king and the separating of the sheep and the goats. Here we have wheat and weeds, or tares, uh, which is a, a metaphor for the lost and the saved. In, in verse 41, the Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel 7. Uh, 13 through 14, and the relationship to judgment. Here the Son of Man continues that role as the one executing final judgment. It's interesting that uh, it is the Son of Man directing the angels. It is unique to this gospel who extends the kingdom of God uh, to also to be the kingdom of the Son of Man, known as Jesus. So, so Matthew does that a little bit differently than some of the other uh, scripture does. Some of the other, I'm sorry, gospels, synoptic gospels specifically. So that'd be Mark and Luke. Uh, Matthew seems to be putting Jesus in the role of taking over the role as God as judge. Uh, with that said, here in verse 40, weeds that are gathered or be burned. Many point to another reference to the incineration of trash in the Valley of Ginnon. Uh, based on what we know about weeds burning, they don't burn forever, so it is an obliteration or, like I said, the annihilation idea of the weeds as they no longer exist. Again, just in case we missed it, looking at Matthew 25, 46, though we haven't actually made it there yet, many have taken uh, that as a proof text that the punishment is eternal, but that is more of a modern view of the word aeonios, which is related to the concept, like I said, of two ages. So the idea would be related to punishment points to what lies ahead and less about continuing forever. The, the people of this time period, my understanding, is that they were less concerned with forever, and they were more concerned with the time in which they existed. 
they didn't really look at eternity in the same way that we look at eternity. It's more of how am I going to survive today? What may tomorrow look like? And how are we going to get through this, this crazy life in which we live? Not, I'm going to check my, my card off and get my ticket to heaven. It's, that was completely, that's a, that's a newer idea, concept, and to be honest, a, an unhealthy way to live as a Christian. Uh, so what is Jesus trying to say here? Uh, it's more than just, like I said, an eschatological message. Of course, eschatological being a fancy word for the end of times. Uh, it is a message of the present. Uh, so let's let's start with a few things. So as we go through this, the I know I'm jumping around a lot. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like I've said before, the fiery furnace has also been referred to as the outer places. Uh, depending on how you want to translate this could depend on what weeping and gnashing of teeth is and where that is located as well as the, the darkness. Where in some places uh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth or also gnashing of teeth we can also is more closely translated as grinding one's teeth. Uh, seems like a, a, a movement of status such as the first becoming last. Here, here it is more ominous and points to those who remain evil or non-repentant are sent to Gehenna or hell and are obliterated. So Gehenna being uh, symbolic of a place in which non-repentant souls go and are annihilated. Uh, the idea of outer darkness only appears in Matthew, and it seems that the writer had a penchant for wailing and gnashing of teeth, which we see here, and we saw also in chapter 8, verse 12. It has little evidence to be to be what we know as hell, but more related to the, the first being made last, it was known from Luke 13, 30. Uh, but in other cases, it seems related to hell. Here, I, I believe it's related more to uh, the existence of hell. Um, but in other cases, uh, I, I see it very much, especially when he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees who really thought they had a, uh, who really thought they were the ones who were supposed to be uh, in, in the finest seat, uh, who were supposed to be the first ones. Uh, I think there's a lot of what Jesus is saying here, that they will, they will be cast out, not, not cast out of the world in the, in the hell, but cast out into outside, as in, into, and let's talk about a banquet. Uh, the, those who are last will be brought into the banquet and made first, and those who thought they should be first will be kicked out, and they'll be upset. And so they'll be grinding their teeth and wailing, weeping. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so the idea here, one, one, one idea you could look at here is that, like I said, again, it's less of an eschatological point, uh, but, but more of a warning to those who lead uh, and become complacent and, and who will realize that though we thought we were uh, the big guys on campus, we were actually not. Uh, that's only Jesus. And so because of our arrogance, uh, we've been tossed out uh, and now are in the back of the line, which for people with a lot of ego, and a lot of power desires, uh, that's a lot of wailing, weeping, and gnashing your teeth. <clears throat> Another way to look at this is those who mistreat others will find a similar fate, as we know from chapter 24, uh, verse 41 through 51, where the servant mistreats the other servant. The owner returns and cuts the servant and tosses him out to where there's weeping and gnashing your teeth. Uh, see who's, uh, and so we, we, we see that one as well. Uh, we also have the idea of the hypocrites of the are the Pharisees who are led to the people of God, but instead of who were to who are who are not led to the people of God, they were to lead. Sorry, the people of God, uh, but instead oppressed and mistreated them for their own gain. Uh, again, this is where we see the first will be made last, which is what just what happened upon the resurrection of Christ when Jesus turned 
uh, returned, when Jesus came here, uh, their lives were put upside down while Jesus made the world right side up. N.T. Wright says that a lot. I believe that's right. I like N.T. Wright. Uh, with all that said, the weeping and wailing and gnashing is written in such a way that it is not in perpetuity. Uh, the weeping and gnashing seems to indicate regret for the fate in which they exist and not to be, like I said, a perpetual torment. So uh, there is a process in which the obliteration happens, and that could be where the weeping and gnashing happen. Again, I'm not giving you the view on uh, hell. I'm giving you a view on hell. There's, uh, there's many... There's, there's multiple good versions of uh, of what hell is. Not good that hell is good, but solid, uh, logical, reasonable viewpoints of, of hell. And I'm just giving you one of annihilation, and it's it's counter to a lot of <clears throat> uh, evangelical viewpoints who are who are not as fond of the annihilationist viewpoint, and they they have the very good arguments for that as well. Um, and that's fine, and there, there's scripture, and it's solid. Uh, but at the same time, I think the annihilationist view is pretty good as well. <clears throat> All right. So one other thing we have to keep in mind is Jesus' concern uh, for the people who were rebelling towards God, which was hindering the furtherance of the kingdom. Jesus' main concern was that God's kingdom was coming again on earth as in heaven. And the reason, so Jesus would speak these parables, he would speak, uh, he spoke the Sermon on the Mount for the idea that um, he wanted to further the kingdom of God. It wasn't that I want you to check all the boxes off and you make, you make the Ten Commandment best, best star list. It's uh, we, we need the idea, not we need, he's not, he's not doing that. He's like, the idea is that I am here to further the kingdom of God. If you follow me, our, our role then is to further the kingdom of God. Uh, and so that's what he was trying to do, is to stop re rebelling. Another thing we want to think about is that the present situation in which Jesus existed. Uh, they were a people under Roman rule. They're very much... Uh, uh, they, and now people will argue this, but I, I've found the readings I've done is that they were quite oppressed spiritually and uh, socioeconomically. Uh, some would say, yeah, it wasn't really that bad. And I, I think it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, and so the idea is they were trying to get underneath uh, the... Uh, from, uh, out from underneath the oppression of the Roman rule. Uh, <clears throat> they were to live under God's rules only, not under the rules of, of Rome. There wasn't that they would... Uh, and when I say the rules of Rome, what I mean is not necessarily pay your taxes. Uh, what I mean is uh, the, like the imperial cult, the idea that you have to worship the emperor. If you don't worship the emperor, we will kill you or uh, destroy your family or kick you out of town and destroy your livelihood. That's, that's what I'm referring to here. It's not following the rules of a good government, which there were some good rules, such as tax paying and uh, making sure that you were a good neighbor and didn't kill people, uh, that sort of thing. But this, it was beyond... Uh, what what is going on here? So, again, the idea was is that Rome isn't going to get them where they need to be. Only God was going to get them to be where they need to be. And the way to do that uh, was to be people of God's kingdom and to further God's kingdom forward. Uh, so, I, it sometimes it feels like maybe maybe we beat that a little bit, but that's kind of a lot of what we see in the Gospels. The Gospels are about reconciliation. The Gospels are about furthering God's uh, kingdom. Uh, the Gospels are about uh, 
learning who we are within God's kingdom and our role within God's kingdom and what Jesus came to do and how we are all part of that, those who believe. So what's interesting here, even though we've spent a lot talking about hell for the last nearly 40 minutes, uh, we get very little information from Jesus about the afterlife. We, we get a story about a man named Lazarus and the rich man, and but that's probably more like, like it's afterlife, but it's in Hades, and there's a lot we could talk about that. But that's a parable, and parables were used to tell us how to live, and in this case, it is about justice and mercy. Uh, if that rich man would have been a whole lot more just and merciful to Lazarus, probably would have had different outcomes there. Uh, and it's, yeah, okay. It was not the intent to show us what the afterlife was like. It was more of an, an intent to say, this is how it is to be a person of just, just and mercy, of righteousness and mercy. Uh, he gives some vague hints about post-mortem judgment, but nothing concrete beyond that. Some people will find it to be dramatically and horribly anticipated. Uh, Jesus stuck close to the Jewish perception of the afterlife that there would be sheep and goats, not literal sheep and goats, uh, but the idea would be uh, that many would be surprised who ended up being which. And I think that is true today. And something that I think about regularly is that, okay, if there's sheep and goats, again, metaphorically, uh, who, who am I going to be at the end of the day? Uh, <clears throat> I hope not to be surprised. As we see in Matthew 25, 46, uh, we can note that hell and final judgment are not key topics in the letters. I'm referring to Paul's epistles. The other epistles written into the New Testament. But there is an instance in Rome, uh, where uh, to the letter written to Rome in Romans 22, 1 through 16, uh, where there is not necessarily talk about hell, but what final judgment could look at. Uh, the, the point to take away here is we don't really know what it actually will be like. Uh, you know, Revelation provides a, a view of some things related to the return of Jesus, but that is mostly uh, a lot of metaphor and symbolism related to that time in which John wrote that. Uh, with the strangeness that, uh, you know, we really can't uh, put our head around. Uh, and it's something that uh, we have to be careful with how we use Revelation. Now, there is Revelation 20, which makes it relatively clear that there is going to be a resting place, and it's not going to be pleasant for uh, the false prophet, the beast, and Satan. So there is that, but not a whole lot of other clarity about what that looks like. I also want to make sure and clear that I'm not coming from a universalist viewpoint, uh, that everyone eventually will make it uh, into uh, the presence of God. Uh, we, we know there is judgment. The Bible is clear about judgment. The Bible is not super clear about what the afterlife is like, but the Bible is clear that there is going to be judgment at some point uh, along the way. And it will be judgment that will vindicate the good and, the, and condemns uh, the evil. It is the only way that heaven and earth can coexist as God's kingdom. Uh, we, we know that judgment must be necessary unless we conclude that God doesn't care or nothing is really wrong. Uh, one thing I wanted to end with is that there's the there's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf who wrote the uh, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. It's probably one of the most dense but very interesting books I, I've read, and, and it's a powerful book. And he talks about evil, and he says the evil must be that evil must be identified, named, and dealt with before there can be reconciliation. And that is what judgment is able to do, allowing for the eventual renewing of the heaven and earth. We must be people of reconciliation and not people of anger and hate. So that's where we are. Thank you, thank you, Miroslav Wolf, for ending this so well for us. Uh, that's where we are. Next week, I think we'll continue to be in Matthew. There's so much more in Matthew. And then after that, we'll jump into Luke and Mark, <laughs> I hope. Uh, but that's where we are.
So, the Gospel of Matthew. We'll continue next week. We'll hit on a few other difficult things that Jesus said in regards to that. And I hope that uh, you guys uh, will be able to uh, join us for that. Thank you. Have a great day. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.